Tina Koto, and welcome to Season 2 of the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast. I'm Karen Hay. Thank you for joining me as we dive deep into the archives to hear New Zealand authors share their experiences of living as a writer in Aotearoa. This season, we're going to hear from poets, playwrights, novelists, and writers for children. In fact, today's author is renowned for his work in all of those genres. Alistair Tiariki Campbell arrived in New Zealand from the Cook Islands during the Depression, a small orphaned boy sent away with a luggage label around his lapel. Alistair went on to be one of New Zealand's most important 20th century writers, reflecting his European and Pacific heritage in his work, leading the New Zealand Society of Authors and becoming an officer of the New Zealand Order of Merit. In November 2004, Sarah Gaitanos sat down with Alistair and asked him when he began writing. Yeah, I started writing in, in the uh, Tiger Boys in the sixth form. I used to write sort of what I considered comic poems. And I used to uh, write sonnets. I used to duck a military drill, and uh, I hated military drill. And I, what I did was to go to the beach. I used to go to Sinclair Beach and wander around. I used to write these awful, these awful sonnets. And uh, there's a, there was an, in the orphanage there was a girl who went to... Uh, to Columbia College, which is a bit like Marsden. And I I showed her these poems, and she took them off and showed them to her friends at school. And they couldn't believe that I could have written them. <laughs> they thought the poems were good. <laughs> they were dreadful. Have you got them still? Oh, no, because I <laughs> destroyed them ages ago. Uh, you met James K. Baxter in Dunedin, too. I, I met him at, at, um, at university. He... He did Latin one with me, and uh, there was only about half a dozen of us doing Latin one. But uh, he, he was in, uh, he'd made a name for himself then by writing, even as a first year university student, he had written a poem called, I think it was called The Convoy, entered for a prize at the Tiger Daily Times, and it, uh, it uh, had won. It had won the prize, I don't know what it was now. And of course, it, it was very impressive, you know. Looking at the poem recently, it wasn't a particularly good poem, very derivative, but for a young young man, it was, you know, it was very good. And did you strike up a friendship at that stage? Sort of, yes. We 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 uh, we didn't knock around all that much, but we did we did see something of each other. Uh, by that time, I, I hadn't written anything that I felt worthy of showing anyone, I mean, apart from these city mm-hmm. school girls. But uh, he himself was making a name for himself and attracting a lot of attention. Did you yeah. see yourself as a poet at the stage? Uh, beginning at the Targa, at Targa Boys, I was becoming interested in the idea. I hadn't made up my mind. But at, at the Targa University, I, I did. I was thinking that, you know, this could be my, my way of life, you know, being a poet. But even then I hadn't... Uh, done anything very much. What was the next step you took? Somehow I'd heard of Warehouse. I don't, I don't remember how. This was 1940... early 1945, I think. It was a good time to apply, and uh, I heard that there was a vacancy, and I moved in. And at the same time, I applied um, I, um, for the university 
to, to do the same courses I did in Dunedin, except I, Latin and English, I think, I studied at Warehouse. And that was good too, because I had a good year, it got, got uh, good marks. But the joy of Warehouse is uh, meeting people like myself for the first time, people I regard as uh, my peers, you know, with the same interest in poetry, like Bill Oliver. W. H. Oliver, who became a distinguished uh, historian, and P. S. Wilson, Pat Wilson. He uh, he was. They're both poets. He was Pat Wilson was a poet too, like Bill. And Pat eventually went to London, married an English girl, and and uh, had an academic like life over there, teaching at a uh, teachers' training college. So it was good meeting people like them people who were excited about poetry, who wrote poetry, better poetry than I did, actually. They, they're much more sophisticated than I was, and I learned quite a lot for, from them. And they were very good to me. They were encouraging. They didn't uh, laugh at my uh, productions. And uh, I, you know, I, I developed a, a good feeling about myself, and that possibly eventually I might write some good poems. Tell me about the literary group at university that you joined or that you formed. Well, I think um, the Literary Society um, more or less began at Warehouse. Pat Wilson and uh, Bill Oliver, Gordon Orr, Jeff Datson, they're all in Warehouse, all very talented people. And, uh, and Outside Warehouse, there was John Thompson and uh, Neil Mountier and various other people who were interested in the new society. And we'd have meetings, often in Warehouse, in the rooms of one of the uh, poets. And sometimes we'd have poetry readings, not, and also we'd read uh, plays. I remember one play we read was uh, Ben Jonson's um, Bartholomew Fair. That's yes. right. It's a rumbustious sort of play and very amusing and in which Ben Johnson clowns, you know, has a great time. And we had, we had a great deal of fun doing reading that play. We also put out a broadsheet and uh, one I, I found one quite recently containing one of my early poems. Quite a nice one, actually. I was surprised because I didn't think I'd written much of any good at all at Warehouse apart from one poem called Green. I don't know yes, I know about Green. That was it's the, right in the beginning of your yes. pocket collected <clears throat> poems, isn't it? Yes. It's the first one, I think. Yes, it is. Well, it's, it's, a, poem, it's, it's a nice poem, and uh, it took me several years to come to the point where, where I could write a poem I'd be quite happy with. I'd written other poems, too, much more rhetorical than that, and uh, as I say, it was, one, it was published in the broadsheet published by the Victoria University Literary Society. Did, what was the broadsheet called? Just broadsheet? Just broadsheet, mm -hmm. yeah. I don't know how many copies we uh, published on that. I, I just remember one. Professor Gordon was very interested in the Literary Society and gave his support. And I think the University, Victoria University College, um, funded the publication of that, the broadsheet. The Baxter was in Wellington by this time, was he? Yes, or not? yes, he came up to Wellington. Must have been about forty-seven or yeah, mm -hmm. about then. He was—he wasn't really part of the Wellington group, except uh, in the co sort of casual contact with with the group. 
But uh, meanwhile, um, the Wellington group had more or less kept together. And we were still writing and reading each other's work. And plans were afoot for the, the start of a literary magazine, something a bit, uh, a bit more solid, a bit more substantial than broadsheet. And that's where John Thompson came into the, into the picture. Mm-hmm. He was a, a very good uh, at organising people, and we needed organising because we're all individuals. Alistair, what distinguished the group in Wellington from the other group uh, groups of writers in New Zealand? There was the, an Auckland group, wasn't there? Yes, there was the Auckland group, um, C.K. Steer and Alan Kurnow and Fairburn. Uh, Glover was never was a Christchurch but I think he, he was still in Christchurch at that time. Well, we we thought that um, they they the Christchurch group, Kurnow and they were more they their Kurnow's attitude was the the New Zealand thing was the subject for mm-hmm. uh, for New Zealand poets. And we didn't uh, go along with that. We we wanted we wanted to be wider than that, to bring in the international scene if possible. So we it's it's the old story actually. Is the the young uh, the young lions sort of uh, trying to reject the older lions from the pride. And although we really respected the work of Kurnow and Fairbird and the others. We made a point of criticising them adversely, you know, at our at our literary society meetings. We'd, we'd take a certain amount of satisfaction in, in tearing the, reput- the reputation of pieces. But it's the sort of thing that happens all the time. Younger writers want to get remove the older writers and take over command of the literary scene. But that's all it was, really. But there was a great deal of... Uh, animosity, ill-feeling, mainly, be, well, we, we, would, we received fairly bad reviews from Alan Kurnow, and, he, and uh, no, one's, no one's happy with a, with a bad review. And there was hostility there, but looking back on it, it's all a lot of nonsense, really, because we were all really writing poems about New Zealand, our New Zealand situation, being a New Zealander. But this other animosity thing just over and above that. And although it lasted for years, until fairly recently, for instance, Alan Kern, I couldn't stand him. But uh, towards the end of his life, I, seeing him on television, I began to change my attitude to him. You know. In the past, he, he was always quite uh, pleasant to me. Whenever I went to Auckland, I'd meet him at, a, at one of the uh, pubs up there. And he always made the point of inviting me to see him whenever I'm, I was in Auckland, but I never did. I suppose I was a bit too scared, you know. He was such a powerful figure, and I was still pretty young and and developing. But, uh, yes. So he actually did encourage you while he was criticising you in one, in one hand. He was encouraging and well, even to give you that recognition that... Um, Yes, was the, it? Was it? Well, he didn't really go out of his way to say, "Look, I like your verse" or anything. Oh. But he was keen that I should drop in and see him sometime, you know, have, have a chat. But I never did. And, poet uh, to poet. <laughs> poet to poet. Yeah, I never did. 
Love was always uh, it was always quite pleasant to me. Mm-hmm. Of course, he had a bad reputation among drinkers, poets who drank, because he never used to. He, he would never shout <laughs> at the pub when it was his turn to shout. He'd he'd fade away. At least that's that's what I was told. I was never there when this sort of thing happened. But that was a story that we'd run about Alan. He, that he was a, on the mean side and, and uh, faded when it was his turn to shout around. Alistair, I wanted to ask you about your view of Penn. If you were critical of the older writers uh, around the country, the um, organisation, you didn't belong, just you hadn't quite belonged to, uh, hadn't joined Penn yet, mm. but um, what was your view of that organisation? Well, I didn't join Penn until I was invited, and that was after I'd published uh, my first book, My Nice Dazzle. So in 1950, I, yes. Perhaps I should talk about that. It was Eric Schwimmer again who, who said he'd looked through my poems and and uh, was very encouraging. He, he said that uh, when he was in Christchurch, he saw Albion Wright, who who ran the Pegasus Press, and talked to Al. I must have given him a selection of my poems. When he was in Christchurch, he went along and saw Albion Wright, who was my publisher for a number of years, actually. And... Uh, he more or less sold this collection, which I called My Eyes Dazzle, to Albion Wright. When he came back to Wellington, Eric said, you know, they're going to publish your book. And that was exciting, actually. But uh, in time, it, it was published. And uh, it was marvellous getting my the author's copies, half a dozen, author's half a dozen. And it was reviewed by Jim Baxter and the listener. He gave it a very good review. And generally around the country, it was you know it was, it was received very well, almost rave reviews in some in some ways. And it was after that that uh, the literary uh, literary fund people expressed their interest in it. Now the older the older poets weren't involved in uh, at that time in, in 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 the literary fund. There was people like Owen Gillespie and. Monty Holcroft. You mean in 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 Penn? In, in no. Or the Literary Fund. Literary Fund. All oh, right. They uh, they weren't on the committee at all. But uh, it was people like Gordon and Owen Gillespie and Monty Holcroft and people like that. Mm-hmm. And they were taken with the book, with the reviews perhaps, and the book. And I was invited to become a member of. Uh, a pen, which I was glad to do because you know it was a matter of status, and uh, I wanted to to join. So I I was connected with Pen for a number of years, dropped in at meetings and that sort of thing. In the early years, how did you view the organisation? How did you see it? A lot of crackpots, mostly. <laughs> the people in Pen in those days, they they weren't exactly exciting people, but. They were doing a good job, I think. But, well, what uh, job did they do? I mean, you belong to this organisation, so you presumably had a sense of fellowship. But did it, did Penn actually support you at that point? Well, with, with uh, recognition, I saw, uh, more than anything. I don't think they, they, they supported me in any, any other way than that. I'm quite vague but, about what Penn did in those days, quite frankly. Turn up to these meetings and meet some quite reputable people, 
and uh, there would be the, the annual um, AGMs when uh, a new uh, executive was selected by the people who turned up. But the rest of the time, I have no faintest idea what they did. They must have done something, sort of beavering away in the, underneath. It wasn't um, a, a union for professional writers then, as it became later, though. I don't think it was. No. I think it was an occasion to get together and to to really talk to each other and tell each other how much they like each other's writing. It was supportive in that sense. But the good, the big things didn't come like the Authors Fund until a lot later. Yes, yes. Well, people, um, the the rivalries that you've talked about, um, were they apparent in at pen meetings? Or did people pull together when they? I think yes. I think it sort of swallowed your uh, your, your your hostility on those occasions. Get together and drink wine and that sort of thing. So, it this hostility wasn't really profound. I never. I don't think you know. Mm -hmm. It didn't. It's something that at one's soul. It wasn't like that at all. But you've got a lovely account of. of um, Baxter, and uh, who of course supported you, but he was also a little bit jealous of your success, wasn't he? Well, as I say, yes, people, writers are terribly jealous people. Well, I, I suppose that's true because he was the the younger um, guy who'd, who'd broken through and had written his first book of poems, Beyond the Palisade, I think it was called, Palisade, Palisade, which created a sensation. Well, my book also created a sensation, but a few years later. Mm. His, he, he, he had quite an astonishing ability, Baxter. And also he was, he was, he was very good, he was a very positive person, and he would get praise where he felt it was due. He wasn't all that keen on women poets, so he and Louis Johnston weren't all that keen, and uh, hurt a few feelings by, uh, by hostile reviews and that sort of thing. I'm Karen Hay and this is the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast. We'll be back to this podcast in a moment, but we want to remind you that NZSA is a professional representative body which lobbies for the rights of all authors in New Zealand. Right now, NZSA is working on the 2019 Copyright Act Review, lobbying for the right of authors to retain control over their work. To learn more about this important issue and to find out more about membership, visit authors.org.nz. Alistair Teoreki Campbell initially came to the public's attention through his poetry. However, he was to go on to have success across numerous genres. We return to the interview as he and Sarah discuss the writing of his first radio play. Well, 64 is the year when I started to write those radio plays. You know, the Proprietor and mm -hmm. other plays, The Suicide, they all came in a bunch about the same time. So one thing led to another. Mm. So it opened up drama for me in writing for writing for theatre, radio theatre. And uh, I began to take writing more seriously again, you know, it became much more part of my life. 
In the 50s, I'd more or less put it aside, having other worries, uh, my marriage breaking breaking down and meeting Meg and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And also beginning to work for um, school publications and being at Teachers College, you know, it was really uh, a year in which a lot of things happened. And having children. And having children. Yes. Gregory is born in 54 and Andrew is born in 57. And, and Aurelian born 58 and Josie 59. So a whole lot of children came one on top of the other. So uh, that left me a little time for my own poetry. Who mentored you as an editor? At school publication? Mm. Well, uh, who was the editor then? Did you have Pat Earl? Pat Earl was an editor, he came later, but uh, John Melser was an editor. He was a, he'd been a school inspector. And before, uh, what was the name? Goodness me. The editor in charge of, well, chief editor, I can't remember her name now, it's terrible, isn't it? I'll think of it later. Anyway, she was very good. Edda, but very nervous, and uh, Pat Hathaway was, was her name. And uh, but she was so nervous, and she had to she had to work over the the manuscripts, and you know, almost squeezed any sort of life out of them. But she was a good editor, but very highly strung and nervous woman. And John Melser was uh, different altogether. I mean, he 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 was uh, his attitudes completely different. He, he allowed us far more freedom of movement and freedom of choice than uh, Pat did. Although most of our work had to be determined by the curriculum, the mm -hmm. syllabuses, uh, we were given a fair amount of freedom. And Director General at the time was Dr. Beebe, and he was all for uh, giving us uh, freedom of movement, mm -hmm. choice, and that sort of thing, providing it, uh, it was relevant to the curriculum purposes. I was there for. 17 years. Too long, really. How did you shape it yourself? Uh, well, I, I stuck very much to the format of previous journals. Uh, there would be a poetry, there'd be um, an article perhaps based on the social studies syllabus, there'd be, poet, uh, there'd be uh, fiction, fairy tale, and a play. That's, that was more or less the, the pattern of the school journal that, uh, that I adhered to. And uh, I commissioned, I think I've mentioned, I, I did commission a lot of writers and the amount of money that uh, I was able to offer them, you know, meant that a lot of people looked to us, looked mm -hmm. to me and to school publications mm -hmm. to help them along with their, uh, their life, lives. And that was, that, well, that was quite exciting because then some of them became quite established uh, children's books writers, children, children's book, books writers. For example? Oh, for example, <laughs> Mayhe. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, Elsie Locke. Yes. And uh, all various other people. Uh, Ruth Dallas was another one. Mm -hmm. And uh, Morris Duggan. He was one of my discoveries. Yes. He had a peculiar idea, Morris Duggan. He 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 had the idea that every poet, that's in, his, in in his imagination, had only a li limited uh, number of themes and ways of writing, uh, which seemed which limited him in many ways. Where I whereas I think that uh, the world's your oyster. You know, there's no limit to what you can do, mm -hmm. what your imagination can uh, cope with. 
the, looking at um, the writing community and specifically members of PEN, a lot mm. of these people that you've mentioned were would have been involved with with the organisation, mm. wouldn't they? Yeah. Um, did you do you have a picture of PEN as any different? Was it changing from when you'd first joined? Well, earlier, I can't remember when, I think it was probably in the 50s that uh, I actually was the treasurer. <laughs> Looking back on I can't understand how I managed that. I think I was treasurer. That sticks in my mind. But uh, and then I sort of drifted out of, out of pen during the years when people like Ian Cross were um, effective in bringing the Authors Fund and things like that. Do you remember some of the conflicts that um, stirred up? I remember one actually which uh, involved C.K. Stead. Yes. He came into a uh, meeting which was held in the New Zealand Council for Education Research uh, uh, meeting room. And uh, the, the meeting had been underway for some time. And he, was, he caused a lot of disturbance, you know. He was very... I don't know what, I can't remember what it was about now, but he certainly upset a lot of people. And uh, he wasn't there very long, and having, having upset people, he walked out. And that annoyed me very much, really, because it had been a useful meeting. Things were going along pleasantly enough. So later that day, in fact, it was evening, I'd, I, I assumed that he'd got back to Auckland. So I thought I'd have a word with him. I rang, I rang up. And he wasn't there. His wife answered the phone, and he wasn't there. Now, that caused uh, a lot of unpleasant things to happen. I don't know who, who spread the story, but um, the story got around that I'd, uh, I'd rung his wife in order to put his weights up, you know, that he suggested that perhaps he was down here with a, with a woman friend or something. And it was most unpleasant, really, you know, that, uh, that he accused me of uh, informing on him, which oh. <laughs> I know it sounds absurd, but years later uh, the story was still very much doing the round, you know, you know, gossip, gossip circulates mm -hmm. very quickly throughout the whole country. I went to a, a meeting, another pen meeting later in the year, that might have been when Michael, when Michael King was president, and Keith Sinclair was very nasty about this, you know. I can't remember what he said now, but he brought it up, you know, that I'd, um, I'd informed on, on uh, C.K. Stead, which was quite untrue. It, it, was a, it was a lie. And years later, when Nelson and I were at a, a, a conference in Auckland... This is Nelson Watty. Nelson Watty. Michael King was there, so, um, so Nelson thought he'd... He would ask uh, Michael King if he knew anything that he might be able to use. And Michael King brought up this phone call. And I was absolutely furious. It's still doing the round years. <laughs> this, was nine, this, was, this was years later. And I, I objected to that very strongly, you know, because I'm, it made me out to be a sneak. And I'm not a sneak. I don't know what he was doing in Wellington. He must have been doing something. He must have been shagging some woman. I don't couldn't give a damn about this activity. Well, we wouldn't have known about it if they didn't perpetuate it. Yeah. Um, so I can tell you, I was very annoyed about that, and uh, it's my opportunity to get it down on, <laughs> on 
to have it recorded. The fact that this nasty gossip had done the rounds, which was just just an example, of course, of the bitterness between Wellington and the Auckland writers. Yes, tell me about that. Is there, there was quite a bit of, of competition between the two groups. Well, I think that um, we had we, we we felt bitter about um, especially Alan Kurnow, and uh, because of his um, attitude towards the Wellington writers. He didn't take us at all seriously, went out of his way to give us bad reviews, for instance. My first book, uh, Mine Eyes Dazzle, was received very well throughout the country, reviewed well. But he reviewed it in, in, in the press in Christchurch, and while he said some nice things about it, generally he, he, uh, it was an unpleasant review. Mm. And um, he was a target because generally he behaved like that towards uh, all Wellington writers, you know. Mm -hmm. Apart from Jim James K. Baxter, who wasn't really a Wellington writer. He came up and became part of the group in uh, 1947 when he came to Wellington. But that attitude, though, of a rather superior tone that he had and uh, that he adopted to, um, to, to younger writers made us pretty bitter about him and I think generally what he had to say was probably quite true that we were young and immature and that sort of thing but it really didn't help relations that he went out of the way to uh, to say that repeatedly even before we were published at all became published writers he was a target uh, of the the Victoria University Literary Society um, he was a target of our of our attacks even before we we were, we were in any way established, but that kept he kept that up for years, and we attacked him whenever we could, and and Hilltop and and Arachne, you know, not often, not directly, but uh, he was certainly somebody that uh, we felt had ill feelings towards. And of course, C.K. Stead uh, also. Uh, was a target because he was e equally unpleasant. His attitude towards my own verse, but uh, it was brilliant, but immature, Im immature verse, which uh, you know, which wasn't something that I would take uh, lying down. But generally, that's this ill feeling continued for years. Was Kurnow involved with Penn? Uh, not really. No, no. But C.K. Stead was the Auckland representative, wasn't he? Um, so he was um, at meetings, and at one stage he was the peer representative on the literary advisory, oh, he was quite, on the advisory council. Yeah, he was quite um, active. The free fund advisory committee. Mm -hmm. So did he do any? Did he do any harm? No, he just. I think he just liked being unpleasant. He liked to stir things up, and um, he must have got some satisfaction out of doing that, because he just, on that occasion that I mentioned before, he just, having done that, stirred people up uh, in, this, in this particularly snide way that he has, he disappeared. <laughs> and, and that brought about this ridiculous piece of gossip that went around the country. It really, it really annoyed me. Was there still the, a distinction between Auckland writers and Wellington writers in terms of their philosophy? 
Well, I think by the 1960s that, that had really changed. I think it was really a matter of personalities and personality of Curnow and, and C.K. Stead and, uh, and Smitherman. I mean, there they were writing a sort of poem that we, we weren't particularly interested in at that time. But as far as subject matter was concerned, Alan Curnow once said that the that New Zealand poets should be writing about the, the real thing, the New Zealand thing. All throughout my writing life, I've been writing about the New Zealand thing, even my love poems. I drew my, my imagery from my, the surrounding landscape. So really, um, that, that idea, that, that division that's supposed to have occurred between Wellington and Auckland no longer existed, because in the 60s, uh, we went our separate ways, and we were writing about New Zealand things just as much as the Auckland crowd were. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't a division there at all, really. Or if there was a division, it, it, it slowly faded away, and we were all writing about the same sort of things. But it was a clash of personalities. We, uh, we didn't get on with the Auckland crowd. We didn't like them all that much, and they didn't like us. You know, It was purely a matter of... Uh, personal enmity, I think. Mm -hmm. What about South Islanders? How, um, of course, you've got um, Bresh and, and um, Glover and and you've the people in Dunedin, but yeah. um, we, how significant were they in, the, in Penn? Well, Dennis Glover, I suppose you could say he was, he, he was, um, he was significant. He, he turned up at meetings and became a bloody nuisance, you know. <laughs> but by the time that I knew Dennis, he, his alcoholism had more or less um, uh, destroyed his mind to a large extent. Mm. He became an, an, an embarrassment. But Charles Brash, I don't think he was ever associated with Penn, although he, he may have written about Penn and his activities attacking or supporting in his editorials in, uh, in Landfall. So the South Island uh, didn't have very much impact on the activities of of, uh, of Penn, mainly because I suppose most of the writers were in Wellington and Auckland. Mm. There weren't many writers mm. at, at that time living in the South Island. By that time also, um, Glover had moved to Wellington, and uh, there are very few writers that I can remember in the 1960s who were associated with Penn. Or even in the 1970s, when you were, when, because you were president in the 1970s. Mm. Do we see a change in the membership? It's growing it, all the time. Yes, yeah, growing all the time. And uh, there again, there weren't so many writers from the South Island. I think they started to develop slowly over the years, and more and more mm. began to write, and, and also joined, uh, joined Penn, as it was known then. How did you? How did Penn help you in your writing? Oh, of course, it helped me immensely with uh, the Authors Fund for one thing. Yes. And also the, the development of Creative New Zealand. I think um, the Penn would be would have been involved in that directly and indirectly, and all that certainly certainly been great help for somebody like me. Towards funding. Towards funding. And yeah. other in other ways. Well, socially, that was important. You'd meet uh, regularly, you'd, you'd meet writers and uh, get their opinion on, on things, perhaps on your own writing or discussion about which way the writing was going in New Zealand. That was the, the, the social side of Penn was, was, uh, was impo as important as the, 
the more directly uh, political side mm. of it. Joining the committee and your involvement in you know, running the organisation, was that largely for social reasons as well, or were you, did you just see, it, see there was a role for you to play there and take that up? Yeah, I thought that I'd been around quite a long time and I had a few ideas and I had the support of people like Loris and others and uh, I've become quite shrewd over the years and in meetings, conduct, conducting meetings, that was important, you know. I was president of um, st the Students Association at Wearing Teachers College and, uh, in 19, 1953. And uh, I learned there how to conduct meetings, you know, mm -hmm. use the proper language for it and the procedures. And that, that was quite useful to me uh, years later when running Penn. It worked very well, I think. I think I was a reasonably popular sort of uh, president of Penn, being easygoing. Perhaps too easygoing in my... <laughs> I don't know. Another issue was the international membership your, your capitation to international pen. Yeah, well, Have you anything to say about that? Well, we were we were really a, a New Zealand branch of the international pen, mm. and uh, it was uh, Pen International New Zealand Centre. I think that's our that's our description of our pen. And occasionally, um, somebody would turn up at from Penn representing New Zealand Penn at international conferences and seminars, but but I can't remember much about that now. So we did keep in touch to a certain extent, mm. keep in touch with what was going on throughout the world. I'm curious about how you at the same time doing these very personal things, very publicly, mm. I suppose it's the nature of being a poet, mm. um, that you have, that you put your inner life and your private life in the public. At the same time, you have these, this very public role with Penn and also in your job, mm -hmm. um, very public profile. And you were patron of the Society of um, Poets, is that right? Poetry Society. Poetry Society. At what time? I was patron of that for years. I think um, it was um, Irene Adcock, who, who was a member of the Society of Society who put me in that position. But uh, I didn't really turn up very often to poetry readings, but uh, there I was for a number of years. After being that patron for many years, I decided to pull out because one of the people wondering why I didn't turn up. Well, yes, I got to the stage where I just uh, didn't like turning up to these things anymore. After you were no longer president of, of Penn, you stopped going to meetings, mm. partly because of the distance. Yeah. Now, did you feel isolated up here? Mm, not really, no. Uh, that's, uh, this was about, I dropped out more or less around about 1980 or even, yeah. Mm. No, I didn't really. I felt that uh, I had been in touch with things that were happening in the writing world. and. Uh, I felt it was time for me to move away mm -hmm. and observe things more from a distance. There's one other thing that we didn't mention, and that was um, regarding Penn, that was the, the the role that you played with regard to supporting writers in prison and, and yeah. um, 
you were quite keen for that to be, for, for, yeah. for people, New Zealand to yeah. up the ante there a bit. Yes, yes, I remember that. Mm. Yeah, there was quite a bit of discussion about that. I'm not sure just how far that went. Uh, what is well, that? it still is an issue, isn't it? It is, it continues mm. to be. Mm. And we made some representations, but I'm not sure to whom or, or what. But that, there was that international organisation who, who's very concerned about uh, treatment of prisoners and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I think we might have got in touch with them. But how far? I think resolutions were passed and I think were, were forwarded to wherever we felt the, the need to be. Mm -hmm. So you left, or at least you finished as president in 1979. Um, you've judged more competitions since then. So I mean, you've still been involved as a as a senior figure. Mm, mm. Um, what is it like judging competitions? <laughs> well, it's, uh, it depends. It depends. Yeah. If there's one outstanding poet or novelist, it's no problem at all. I mean, that person sticks out head and shoulders above the rest. But when, when you have a number of people who are about on the same level, it is very difficult mm. to sort them out and decide because one may write in a different way, it may not be fashionable anymore. And on the other one man might be writing modern uh, stuff. That can be quite a problem. Is it something you do out of a sense of obligation? I did then, I think. Mm -hmm. Being being a member of, uh, of, of Penn, I, I felt I had to uh, contribute in some ways. And you certainly encouraged the scheme for junior writers mm. under 18 mm. or 18 years and mm. under mm. Um, at school and general writing. I guess mm. that was relevant to your work at, at school as well. Yes, well. yes. Mm. Well, let's move on from from there. And this is anything more that you can... Oh, well, yes, there is one thing, another, um, uh, another thing that came up involving Michael King. And it doesn't reflect particularly well on him, but I think uh, I may as well record it, what it's worth. A friend of ours, Peter Webster, had, had done a thesis on uh, the uh, Rua Tekana, the, uh, the Maori prophet. Anyway, he, he, he wrote, he, he, he spent a lot of time on this, and went up and stayed a lot of time in the Uruwera and speaking to the various people there who, who knew about uh, Rua. Having done that, he uh, eventually wrote a book about, about his experiences there, about Rua, and then he deposited the, the thesis with an embargo on it for five years. Then he went ahead, that's Peter Webster, went ahead and wrote this book here on, on, uh, on Rua. Michael King got to hear of, uh, of this thesis and inveigled the, one of the junior librarians to take the thesis out and lend it to him, which really wasn't, wasn't on. And it caused uh, quite a lot of uh, talk. In fact, uh, I heard of it when I was president of Penn. I, I talked to him about it. I felt like a headmaster sort of rebuking a, you know, a junior, uh, one of the schoolboys. And I think Loris also, I don't know why she jumped in, but she also had a mind about that. He knew that he, he'd become very unpopular doing that, you know, it's 
not the sort of thing one does to that's rather underhand. And in the end he, he wrote a long a long letter to Peter Webb pointing out that because of what he did, using his own phrase, it, it had upset a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the letter was so reasonable that uh, Peter Webb decided to, to forget about it, you know. This is Peter Webb, W-E, Webster, Webster. Webster. Yes. yes. So that ended up, um, ended well. It ended well, yes. As he said to Peter Webb, the shit had hit the, the fan mm. and he just wanted to clarify things and mm-hmm. apologise for mm. what he had done. Mm. So he, he's, he's practically a saint now, but he hasn't always been saintly. I think that's... that's <laughs> Still, it was, it was a gracious um, retreat. <laughs> it was the sort of thing one, you don't expect people like Michael King to do, you know. It's underhand, mm. there was an embargo on the book, on the thesis. Mm. And the girl, too, who, uh, who did uh, get hold of this thesis and let, hand it over to was apologetic also, apologised to Peter Webster. But it's one of the things that happened, and uh, and I suppose will continue to happen. People want to take uh, shortcuts. Did you feel that you needed to talk to him as a writer to a writer, or because of your role with Penn? Oh, probably more of my role as Penn. Yes. Uh, and I suppose also as a writer, it was underhand. And... Uh, it, it, it's the sort of thing that uh, shouldn't happen. Were there any other things like that that you recall with individuals? No, that, that was the the only the only one that really required some sort of action on my position as uh, as, as the chairman of mm-hmm. President of Penn. I thought I should say something, although I was a bit embarrassed about it all. I don't know how he felt about it. I never spoke to him about my telling off. <laughs> but he was a reasonable guy, I meant he took that well. You've been listening to an interview in 2004 between Alistair Tiariki Campbell and Sarah Gaitanos on the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast. What we've played today is only a small portion of their discussion, which covered other aspects of his life, including his family and personal tragedies. The full tapes are available at the Turnbull Library of New Zealand. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks. Make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing to the podcast on SoundCloud or wherever you listen. This podcast was produced by Elizabeth Kirby MacLeod for the New Zealand Society of Authors with funding from Pub Charity Limited. Notturno by Ottorino Respighi, which you are listening to now, is performed by Justin Bird. The audio was digitised and provided by the Alexander Turnbull Library. I'm Karen Hay and this was a New Zealand Society of Authors oral history podcast. Kakite anō.